Let's open our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 22. I remember when the Holloways came, we had the three older and the three middle and the three little, and those were two of the three little tonight, and they sound really good. Thank you for bringing that. We come to the final church in our study, the seven churches of Asia Minor and the church of Laodicea. Just as a review, let's go over the characteristics of the first six churches, and then we'll introduce the seven, the seventh. Uh, the church at Ephesus was the first that we visited. They were busy but cold. The church at Smyrna, faithful in persecution. The church at Pergamos, tolerant of sin. Thyatira, they were busy but easily seduced. The church at Sardis, on, on the verge of dying. Church at Philadelphia, we looked at last time, enduring and evangelizing. And now the Church of Laodicea, the church that was complacent and self-deceived. And I don't know which church that you would like to join. I think I mentioned last week I would like to be in the Church at Philadelphia. But uh, uh, we find ourselves, as we look through history, that there are some churches like this in every age. And as we look around the churches today, we find churches that fit the same categories, churches like this today. And I'm reminded of the admonition that we've been given at the end of each of the church study. Uh, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the, unto the churches. And so I trust we are, we are listening to what God is saying. And as we look around, we see the, the needs of churches to come back to where we ought to be. Well, notice the first uh, verse here, Romans, I mean Revelation 3:14a, and the angel of the Lord, or and the angel of the church of Laodiceans, write uh, unto the angel. And so again, uh, Jesus is telling John to write to these pastors who are uh, above each of these churches. And so we start with our, our outline that we've been using for each of the churches with the word assembly. Let's look at the assembly. The name Laodicea means rule of the people. Antiochus II founded the city. Probably he, he named it after his, his wife, Laodicea. Uh, he divorced her in 253 B.C., so the city was probably established before then. I got to thinking as I read about that, it's unlikely that he would name a church for someone that he had divorced, so unless it was a part of the al alimony agreement, but uh, at any rate, it, was, it probably dates it before 253 as far as the city goes. Laodicea is located 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. I don't know if you're in the back of your Bibles, you have the maps of uh, the, the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey or not. But it's, it's fascinating to see as, as the, the route would be taken, either delivering the letters to these churches or visiting the churches, this is a normal route, a uh, circular route from Ephesus to Laodicea. And so southeast of Philadelphia, the last church we were at, now 40 miles, and we've come full circle to the journey through Asia Minor, come to the city that is now 100 miles east of Ephesus where we started. Two other nearby cities formed a tri-city area with Laodicea. Colossae was 10 miles to the east. Hierapolis was six miles to the north. They were in the, the Lycus River Valley. There were hot mineral springs in Hierapolis. The cliffs rose 300 feet and extended for about a mile. And they were, they were white because of the, the lime and the sulfur that they contained. 
In Colossae, there was a river, a cool water river fed by the mountains that were nearby, the spring, the snow melt in the spring. And, uh, and so th there was a river of cold water there contrasted with the hot springs in Hierapolis. Laodicea was situated on a plateau that rose several hundred feet above the Lycus River Valley. And the surrounding mountains made it a very good stronghold, but for one thing. The only thing that made them vulnerable was that there was no easy access to the water supply. They could easily be surrounded, the water supply cut off, and they would lose the battle. Water had to be piped in uh, to Laodicea, either from Hierapolis or Colossae. They, they were transporting water from both of those cities through aqueducts. The city at Laodicea was prosperous. Uh, they were known for their black wool that was produced and exported. Uh, the wool was used to make uh, cloth of very high quality, highly sought after. There's a medical school located there as well. A local stone was crushed to powder and used to make eye salve. It became very popular in the treatment of the diseases in the eyes in the surrounding areas. Laodicea was on two important trade routes. And it became a wealthy and important economic center. They were advanced in banking and commerce. It's interesting that to find that Cicero, the Roman orator or philosopher, cashed letters of credit there. Also, the people at Laodicea were self-sufficient. They were wealthy. They were well-educated. They were successful. When the city was leveled by an earthquake, especially the one in AD 60, we talked about how many earthquakes were in that area in Turkey um, or in Asia Minor at that time. Instead of accepting money from the Roman government like all the other uh, cities around them did, they rebuilt the city on their own funds. When we come to their religion, they worshiped mainly uh, the god of Zeus, the main god. They also worshiped Antolion, the god of the moon. They worshiped, as other cities did in that time, the emperor of Rome, and the temple of the Phrygian king, Menkaru, was also there. Josephus writes that there's a large population of Jews who settled in the area. In fact, they were able to get a count. One of the officers, a governor, confiscated the offerings that the Jews tried to send to the saints at Jerusalem. You remember when that happened. And each of the Jewish men would give a required amount for that offering. We don't do that here at Grace. We don't have a required amount, but they did. And from the amount, it was estimated that 7,500 Jewish men lived in the city of Laodicea. Interestingly, Paul had not been to the city. He had not been up the Lycus Valley. The book of Colossians was written in 60 A.D., it was written after all of the three missionary journeys that we talk about in Paul's travels. And he, he writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Some think Archippus was the one who started the church at Laodicea. In Colossians chapter 4, in verse 16, it says, and when this epistle is read among you, again, Colossae, very close by Laodicea, 
Cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. That was probably the letter to the Ephesians. Remember, Colossae close by, 10 miles away, Ephesus 100 miles to the west, and so the letters would have been passed around to the churches. That gives us an idea of what it was like to be in in the church at Laodicea. Now let's look at the appearance of Christ. And again, as he comes to each of these churches, he appears as exactly what they need. In verse 14, the second half, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And there are three descriptions of who Jesus is. First, the Amen. The word in Hebrew means uh, something about truth. It refers to something that is uh, affirmable, something that is genuine, something that is certain. In the Greek, amen is usually translated truly or verily in our New Testaments. We say amen in church when we agree with the truth that's being spoken. The word amen is usually found as an adverb. So when we read verily, verily, I say unto you in the New Testament, that's truly, it's an adverb. But here, it's a noun. And we have the definite article, the. Notice the the translators have capitalized it. The amen. It's talking about a person. It's talking about Christ. Jesus Christ appears to this church as the amen, the truth. Also, we see the description, the faithful and true witness. Because he is the truth, all of the things he says are true. Uh, Faithful and true. He is faithful. That means he is consistent. He's dependable. His message is always the same. His truth is always unchanging. You can rely on it. Boy, doesn't that give you comfort in a day and age where everything seems to change so quickly? The older I get, the more I see how quickly things change. In fact, the songwriter said, change and decay in all around I see. O thou that changest not, abide with me. He is faithful. He's also a true witness. His witness is true. Every promise that he has given is going to be fulfilled. Every warning of punishment is going also to be fulfilled. So this is what the church at Laodicea needed to see. They thought they were something that they weren't. They thought that they had something that they didn't. And we'll see them taken to task over that self-sufficiency, over that misunderstanding when we get down to verse 17. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He still is. Jesus is also called the beginning of the creation of God. The word beginning here is a word for someone who initiates something. Jesus is the one who initiated everything. He is the creator. He He has the right to rule as creator. You know, the lost man, and I think he attacks this, this, the first chapters in the, in the book of the Bible, Genesis, because it clearly lays out that God is creator, and man does not want to think of God as creator. Why is that? Because the creator has, if he made me, he has the right to tell me how I should live. That makes me accountable to my, to my maker. And so man wants to come up with some other way that that we came into being, evolution. Whatever they they come up with 
has as its impetus this desire not to bow to a creator. Jesus is called the beginning of the creation of God. Why is that necessary? Why, is, why did he reveal himself to the church at Laodicea like this? They were living in a, na- in a city named Rule of the People. Jesus was revealed to them as the supreme ruler of all creation. There's no approval for the church at Sardis when we went through that. That was one of the A's in our outline for each church. And there's no approval for the church at Laodicea either. Nothing commendable that the Lord had to say about this church. Let's go right to the admonition. He says, like he said to every other church, I know thy works. If nothing else has, has stuck in your heart in our study of the seven churches, I hope that has. God knows everything. I know thy works. That's encouraging if you're serving him. It's convicting if you're not. And whatever that brings in your heart, I hope there's a change. I hope we live every day living under the scrutiny of God's omniscience. He knows us. That should change the way, everything that we do. I know thy works. They were complacent, lukewarm. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. They were not cold like the waters at Colossae, nor hot like the mineral springs of Hierapolis. God's estimation of the church at Laodicea was that they were like the water that arrived through those aqueducts. The problem wasn't just that it was warm by the time it got to their city. It picked up impurities in those open trenches or aqueducts along the way. And it picked up those things that would make people sick. God is saying, your service to me is half-hearted. Either get zealous about the Christian life or quit trying to be religious altogether. Nothing is more repulsive than half-hearted service, than complacent service. They were complacent. They were self-deceived, verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Layman Strauss writes, A true indication of this church's spiritual decay is witnessed by the fact that she speaks of herself and not of Christ. Because thou sayest. What were they claiming? Thou sayest, I am rich. Thou sayest, I am increased with goods. Thou sayest, I have need of nothing. What was the problem? What does God have to say about them? Well, there are five things. You're wretched. The word there means distressed. You ought to be realizing how how bad things are. They were in a state of distress, of wretchedness. Thou art miserable. That 
We, we generally use that word in a different way today, but it's to be pitied. Others should have misery or pity on you. Then he also said they were poor. Now, wait a minute. They said that they were rich. Their financial resources aren't of any help. He's talking about a spiritual condition. He also says you're blind. The eye salve that they exported all around the Greco-Roman world couldn't cure their spiritual blindness. They're naked. That black-colored wool used in making clothing was of no help. There are people today that have deceived themselves. They look at their lives and they say, things are pretty good. They vote conservatively. They attend church services. They sing the hymns like everybody else. I must be saved because I do all these things. Everything is okay. They're the ones that Jesus will answer on the day of judgment. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Layman Strauss writes, these people were merchants. They were used to buying and selling. In this way, they had accumulated large fortunes. But theirs was the gold of this world. They had gained it by trading with the merchants who came from the east to Laodicea with their camels laden with goods. This, however, is not the coin of the realm of the kingdom of God. The Laodiceans were traders in garments made of the world's finest wool. But these were no covering for the nakedness of a man's soul. They were dealers in expensive ointments, but such ointments could never heal their poor spiritual vision. <laughs> Laodicea, outwardly rich, yet inwardly poor. It's interesting to, to compare them to the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. They were outwardly poor, but God said, you're rich. Don't make the same mistake that this church did. That by thinking prosperity automatically means spirituality. God's blessings are not always measured by material provisions. We move now to the appeal in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me. Now remember, Jesus is the messenger. He's, he's the one that's giving the message to John to write to the church. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Buy what Christ has to offer. He's talking about the pursuit of salvation. Buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Gold that's put into the fire is purified. The dross is consumed. This is the preciousness of redemption that only God provides through Christ. By of or from me, Jesus is the only one who has this treasure of salvation, this gold. We have to come to him. He was offering the most valuable thing that any person can have, the pure gold of salvation that no earthly currency can purchase. You know a wonderful thing about this? 
It's always been offered freely. Isaiah wrote, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buy of me gold, tried in the fire. And then come for white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. This is divine righteousness. The only way our garments, our, our human efforts, those things that are stained with sin, the only way those garments can be made white is by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He was perfect. He is the only one who can make you spotlessly clean. We sang that song tonight, His Robes for Mine. That's what salvation is. He, he's willing to exchange his righteousness for your robes of unrighteousness. What a wonderful salvation. White raiment. And then he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. This is spiritual sight. We are born spiritually blind in the darkness of our sin. Let's just turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It's a wonderful section here, speaking of blindness and sight. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. In whom the God of this world, who's that? Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Notice it's their minds that are blinded. They're blinded to the truth. Who's doing it? The God of this world. Satan is blinding the minds of people which believe not. You say, well, who's responsible for their lostness, for their unsavedness? Well, you can't blame Satan. He's blinding the minds of them who believe not. It's their unbelief. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In the original language, those ofs just compound the thoughts until you get to the, the, the image of God. The light of the glorious gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then Paul says, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And here again, that light and darkness issue. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Lord is the one who gives us light. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Christ will give you light. He'll give you sight. He also says not only this appeal of to, to come to Christ to have what he has to offer. He also says, repent of your sin. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. What's the reason for repentance? Rebuke and chastening, when they come into your life, are a sign that God loves you. I know it's difficult when you go through those things. But the Lord chastens us to bring us close to himself. I had occasion in my teenage years 
to visit the woodshed with my dad. And I learned a valuable lesson. He would, uh, he would use a stick to, to punish me. I hope this doesn't uh, uh, offend anybody who has sensibilities about child abuse. Uh, but he, I needed it, and he applied it. And I found that when, when he was swinging that stick to apply the, the wisdom, um, when I moved away from him, it would hurt more. And when I got up close, he lost the leverage. And I think that's what God wants us to do. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. When, when that chastening comes, it's not pleasant, it's grievous. But it comes into your life, remember, it's because he loves you. And run to him, not away from him. So we have this, this verse 19, the reason for repentance Rebuke and chastening are the signs that God loves you, and he's calling you to repent. Look at the manner of his repentance. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. I love this word, zealous. It's the same word that we saw back in verse 16, I would you were either cold or hot. He wants us to be on fire for him. He wants us to be zealous in the way that we repent. Oh, if only we would run to him when... The punishment comes with that same zeal that we run toward other things. Repent of your sin. The third admonition is found at the beginning of verse 20. Open the door. It's a wonderful verse. It's been used in in messages for ages. For people who need to open their heart's door to Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, now he's gone from speaking to the church to speaking to the individual in the church. If any man hear my voice and open the door, what will happen? I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Again, the application has been made to the lost man, but I believe it also is applicable to the Christian. When when. Jesus comes to your life and says, will you let me in? I want to sup with you. That means to dine with you, to to fellowship with you. He wants to come. Christ is at the door of your life. Most of you have seen Holman Hunt's painting. It's famous with Christ standing outside a door knocking. One day an artist friend pointed out the mistake in the painting He said, you have no latch. He said, no, I haven't made a mistake. The latch is on the inside. You and I must respond to open the door. Christ is at the door of your life. The the tenses of the verbs here, I stand at the door and knock, I am standing. This is a position that Jesus has taken outside of a person's life. He's standing there. What a beautiful picture of our Lord waiting for us to open the door. I'm standing. I am knocking. Again, an ongoing, continuous action. Jesus appeared to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3.7 as the one that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. He has authority. He could break down the door of our heart if he wanted to. But he wants us to open the door. He knocks. He doesn't force his way in. 
and the, the, the appeal. If you're here without Christ, open the door of salvation to him. Let him come into your life. The appeal for those who are believers, open the door to him. You, you've, you've been saved. You opened it once for salvation, but now he's outside for some reason. And he knocks. And I would encourage you, open the door of full surrender to him. If any man, this is your decision. You can't just look around at a church and say, well, we need to open our heart's door to Christ. It's an individual thing. And look, there's great reward when you let him in. There will be a sweet presence of the Savior in your life. Second half of verse 20 says, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That fellowship that you long to have with Christ is available. He's knocking. There will be a strength given to overcome, verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Look back over the promises of the overcomers in the message to the seven churches. For Ephesus, the overcomer, will eat of the tree of life, chapter 2, verse 7. For Smyrna, he will not be hurt by the second death, chapter 2, verse 11. The church at Pergamos, the, the overcomer, he will eat of the hidden man of the white stone with a new name, chapter 2, verse 17. To Thyatira, he has power over the nations, the millennial rule of Christ. The overcomer to the church at Sardis will be clothed in white. His name will not be blotted out of the book of life. For Philadelphia, the overcomer will be a pillar in God's new Jerusalem. And here in Laodicea, he will sit with me on my throne. There will be an eternal reign with Jesus Christ. The promise here is to sit on Christ's throne forever or with him. He illustrates how he has the authority to say that. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father on his throne. And then those familiar words, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What has the Spirit said to you? Have you come to Christ and put your faith in his work alone on the cross to save you from your sin? If not, open the door to him. Do you think you're doing okay spiritually? Have you become place complacent in your Christian life, like those in the church at Laodicea? Will you say, I'm just tired of living in lukewarm mediocrity. I want to be on fire for Christ. I want to be hot for him. I want to be zealous for him. He stands at your door and knocks. Would you open it to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message is to these seven churches. And I pray that we would take them individually as a message to us. And I pray that if there's anyone that's living a lukewarm life now, that tonight will be the night where that's all turned over to you, that the door will be opened, that you will be welcomed into a life to live, to dwell, to fellowship with us. And that we would know the sweetness of that fellowship, not on a a temporary basis where you go out of, the, of our, our, our heart's door 
and, and we don't even recognize that you've gone. Help us to stay in your presence. Stay in your word. Be people of prayer. Know the fellowship that comes when that unbroken relationship with sin in our hearts is, is confessed and we have that sweetness with you. Lord, we invite you to be the rulers of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.